a Podcast One production. There's a story, an old story. It's a favorite of mine. It involves some very long spoons. Now, I'm talking meters long spoons. And two tables that are laden with amazing, delicious soups. Now, seated around the first of these tables, people are trying as hard as they can to scoop up some of the soup with their spoons and get it into their mouths. But they can't. Their spoons are just too long. These folks can't come close to getting any spoons anywhere near their mouths with any soup. They're starving. They're angry. They're fighting with one another. And then there's the second table. Same deal. Amazing soups and some very long spoons. But at this table, things are different. Everyone around the table is relaxed, friendly, in conversation. One asks another, what's your pleasure? and they point to a particularly tasty soup. The first one, the one who asked, they dip their spoon into that soup and then gently, gently maneuver it to the mouth of the person who pointed to that soup to let them sip it up. And then it goes the other way round, with the soup eater asking, what's your pleasure? I'm maneuvering their spoon to deliver that delectable bit of broth to the person who had just helped them. They're happy. They're content. They're at peace, helping one another. Today on Mark Pesci, the coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and share. In this episode, we'll look to the promised lands of our past to learn if there's room for utopia in our future. Are we just selfish? Are we condemned to misery? Or are there other ways of being with ourselves and with others that can open the door to a future with more hope? What may be the biggest question of our time on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. We need to have a conversation about why we're here. What is the social project that we're all working on together? That's Jess Scully. Now, we had Jess on the next billion seconds back in series one, where we talked about the future of local government. At the time, she had just been elected to Sydney City Council. By the end of 2020, Jess had been elected Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, and she'd become a new mom, and she'd written a book. Glimpses of Utopia isn't just some starry-eyed wandering through a world of impossibilities. Its subtitle, Real Ideas for a Fairer World, tells you that chess is all about results, not ideology. Yet the book, it opens with two diametrically opposed visions of Utopia, both of them almost 150 years old. The first, by Edward Bellamy, is titled looking backward. So it's about this guy who um, wakes up. He, he was having insomnia and he asked his doctor for a cure. But the cure was a little too strong. 
And basically, this guy slept through a hundred and something years. And he went from going to sleep in his basement in Boston to in, in 1887 and waking up in the year 2000, still in Boston, but a radically transformed Boston. And rather than the Victorian era... Um, polarization. You know, you had the e- extremity of wealth and privilege and, and disadvantage on the streets of Boston and the sort of grime and um, hustle and bustle of the, of the industrial world. Suddenly you were in this egalitarian, inclusive, creative, uh, leisurely place, a place where people retired at the age of 45, a place where every need was catered for, every person was educated and supported to fulfill their um, societal possibility. So so what they could contribute to society uh, through work, but also as active citizens. And suddenly he wakes up and he's in the house of Dr. Leet. And Dr. Leet and his beautiful daughter, uh, become his guide through this incredibly transformed world. That sounds nice. A world of leisure. A world where you could retire at 45 and live as you pleased in a world of plenty. I think if there was one word to describe this world, it's convenience. Everything was piped into your home in, in terms of music and entertainment and culture. It was quite prescient, actually, of the way that we consume media right now. Uh, People ate at these big dining halls where food was prepared in one place. And and rather than going to many different shops, you went to one big store where everything was transported there. And there was really, I describe uh, looking backward as a love letter to logistics, more than a really great piece of, of, um, of narrative, because it's all about describing how products get to you. And there's an industrial army, is what Bellamy describes, of people working to deliver this stuff. And it makes life very easy and very comfortable for everyone. Now, I read Looking Backward when I was an idealistic young man, and it made quite an impression on me. I could see how that future would be something worth working toward. And I remember reading Bellamy's explanation in Looking Backward for how that world came to be. That what happened over the years is there were so many mergers of one company into another company, into a bigger company, into a bigger company, that it finally just became clear that there would be only one provider of all goods and services, and that became the way forward for humanity. What seemed like a strange outlook in 1887 when he wrote Looking Backward, it feels a lot more tangible today with trillion-dollar businesses and monopoly capitalism everywhere you look. In some sense, the world of Looking Backward resembles nothing so much as the world that Jeff Bezos wants to build for us, everything delivered in perfect convenience via Amazon. The difference between these being the chasm between a for-profit and a post-profit world. And we've never crossed that chasm. And as Jess Scully discovered, some folks wanted to make that chasm disappear, not by leaping into a communalist economy, but by stepping back into a world that is fundamentally pre-modern. 
One of the readers of Looking Backward was William Morris, the founder and the great guiding light of the British arts and crafts movement. He hated everything about Bellamy's industrial, utilitarian, communal version of the future, except the utopia. So Morris wrote his own answer to Looking Backward, titled Notes from Nowhere. Well, Morris hated Bellamy. Could not stand it. Just thought, why on earth would you want to live in a world where everyone is just a consumer? For Morris, uh, the thing that was truly human and liberating uh, is creation, is making. And because he's a designer, he, he comes from that tradition and he can see how empowering it is to express yourself through making. So Morris also had a guy wake up from a very deep sleep into a new world. But the London that his character, William Guest, wakes up in um, is transformed in a very different way. Rather than the sort of grimy, industrial, narrow streets of London in the 18th, uh, 1800s in the 19th century, suddenly you're in this semi-rural pastoral idol where the the buildings have been torn down and orchards have been planted instead, where the Houses of Parliament have been turned into a dung market, um, where uh, in the great clearing of 1955, a lot of the big buildings and the factories have been wiped away and London has been renewed in this um, sort of very big green uh, renaissance. And people follow their passions and their creativity and they teach themselves to make and create. And people specialise and focus on the things that they love. But no one has one job. You have uh, different roles that you might pick up for a season or that you might return to. And you offer that work as service to your fellow man, but you don't exchange money for this work. Um, And whereas Bellamy focused on this idea of education as a way of liberating people and lifting them up and and, and, uh, transforming the the future of the generations to come... Morris saw education as something that was really self-initiated and kids learnt by wandering in the forests of London and teaching themselves and teaching each other what they needed to learn. These two visions of utopia, looking backward versus notes from nowhere, points to one of the fundamental tensions operating within each of us as human beings, the need to be social versus the drive to be an individual. Bellamy writes a future for us as worker bees, all working together to create a new, shiny, technological and fundamentally social civilization. Morris writes a world where we have all become artisans, creatives, each following our own star toward our individual destinies. Neither utopia really has room for the other, which is a problem. Because we exist on a continuum between collective and individual. And we move across that continuum as we mature, as we move through different roles and find ourselves both asking for and being asked for a range of social supports. There seems to be uh, more structure and order and um, more predictability to Bellamy's vision. There are times that, you know, I'd want them to deliver the mail from Bellamy's vision, right? That's the one that I want to rely on. But I'd rather 
you know, wear the clothes from Morris's vision. I'd rather eat at the feasts in Morris's vision because it's so much more about creative production and, and society being driven by love. And as you say, kind of from the passion and the creativity of bottom-up creation. And it's all very self-directed and very autonomous. Um, and it it trusts people to govern themselves. That's what's beautiful about Morris's vision. Whereas Bellamy's vision doesn't allow you that much room for experimentation or for deviation from the norm, but it would be a very comfortable and reliable existence. There are times when we need comfort. There are other times when we need autonomy. So we need to find room for both of these. But these stories, and let's be honest, however appealing they are, both looking backward and notes from nowhere are more wishes than blueprints. These stories face a more fundamental problem. It's called the sunrise problem. In both cases, the protagonist wakes up into a transformed world. And the story of that transformation, at some point, it's relayed to the protagonist. The protagonist didn't live through it, doesn't see it, and therefore doesn't really understand it. It's just a fable. And that's where these utopias fall down. Although it may be a good storytelling device to have your characters leap over all the hard bits that go into making a utopia, the readers, they have nothing to hang that vision onto. They have no tools to bring that utopia into being. So it just sits there on the other side of the chasm of the possible. In a moment, we'll cross that chasm and look what's being done to bring a bit of utopia into our world today. In her book, Glimpses of Utopia, Jess Scully, Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, has written about practical utopias. It's not stuffed with pie-in-the-sky, what-if scenarios, because that's not really helpful. Sure, they can inspire, but if you can't translate inspiration into action, what have you got? So let's focus on the possible. And the first of these possibilities, it's already happening. Because one of the ideas that's been floated to bring us a bit closer to utopia is something known as Universal Basic Income, or UBI. It's effectively a cash payment from the government to its citizens to keep them at a standard of living that might not be fantastic, but it's certainly enough to survive on. And if that sounds like a fantasy, well, that's exactly what the Australian government sought to do with its $100 billion JobKeeper program paying three and a half million Australians $1,500 a fortnight, a living wage, while the pandemic shut down the economy. And it worked. By and large, Australia did not have an economic implosion brought on by COVID-19. But as Jess points out, universal basic income may not be the best long-term solution. Instead, we might want to move to what she calls universal basic services. I guess the idea is what is essential to life and what can we procure, purchase, underwrite or support as a society more ably than people can 
purchase or uh, secure through a, an individual transaction. That to me is the difference between universal basic services and universal basic income. This is not settled and there are different points of view, um, you know, across the political spectrum about an idea like universal basic income. Uh, some people say it really allows people freedom as far as deciding how they spend their money and where they're, uh, what they prioritise, what their needs are. I agree that's important. People need discretion. They need to be able to spend money. But universal basic services is a safety net. It's what are those things that are essential to life, that are essential to human flourishing. Uh, That's housing. It's access to education. It's access to technology and the internet. It's um, food, transport, all of those things that are common to all of us as human animals, you know, if we have those basic needs met, then we have an opportunity to go beyond, to contribute more, to be productive economically or socially or culturally. And Universal Basic Services underwrites all of that. Here in Australia, it's clear that health is seen as a universal basic service, which is why there's such broad support for Medicare. We, we kind of agree that health um, is is one of those universal basic services that we all require, but we also know we do better as a society when everyone has access to those things. To an extent, housing has been a universal basic service in Australia. Um, and in a time after World War II in particular, there was a Commonwealth state housing agreement uh, that meant that 700,000 homes were built in a 10-year period. And access to public housing wasn't just something that was on the fringe for the most marginalised people. It was something that everyone had a right to because it was a precondition of being an active member of society, of being able to be educated, to work, to contribute, to care, all of those things. To an extent, education is one of those Uh, assured universal basic services in Australia. However, there are real issues because we for some reason think that education starts at the age of five and ends at the age of, you know, what is it, 18. And everything that falls on either side of those, well, they're getting very expensive. Whereas in other parts of the world, um, we understand that early childhood education is fundamental and it's a precursor to people being able to have a level of personal development Uh, that leads to healthy citizens and functional societies. So really, early childhood education should be a part of that educational um, investment. Though universal basic services goes beyond. Universal basic services also looks at transport and how we get around and thinks about the idea that if you have public transport that's accessible and well-funded and subsidised, then people can be more productive and contribute more and they can get around. And really, for me, I think access to parts of our city is something that can predetermine whether your city is an engine of inclusion or exclusion. So we can draw as much into the definition of universal basic services as we feel comfortable with. And it's not just about what the federal or state or even local government deigns to provide different kinds of entities providing the housing or the education or the childcare services that would be locally relevant or culturally distinctive or or, um, appropriate for different uh, communities or needs. So you wouldn't just get a top 
top-down set of services. You would get a bottom-up flourishing that would be funded by society. Here we're going to bring in another expert from the first series of The Next Billion Seconds, Dr. Darren Sharp. Darren is a research fellow at the Monash Sustainable Development Institute, so he studied how a community in Malmö, Sweden, developed their own mix of universal basic services to help their community flourish. There's an amazing new development called Sege Park in Malmö, which is actually the site of a former hospital. This is a really interesting collaboration between the local government, the city of Malmö itself, 13 real estate developers and an energy company who are building a thousand new dwellings. And it's all served by shared infrastructure. This is really exciting. There's going to be a mobility hub for electric cars, for e-bikes, cargo bikes. There's going to be stuff sharing, a stuff bank for books, toys and a tool library. There'll be a repair hub where residents will be able to fix things for themselves, anything from clothing and apparel to bicycles and appliances to do upcycling, electronics. There'll be co-working facilities and also an urban farm. So what you can see there is some really interesting collaboration happening between local government, real estate developers and energy company to create this really um, exciting social infrastructure, which in a way is kind of like hinting at what Jess is talking about in terms of universal basic services. They have a high level of services and also there's a high level of um, shared infrastructure. I think it's this idea that in that um, urban development where there's a thousand dwellings, there's this intentionality between these um, multiple stakeholders in the public and private sector coming together to make sure that there's common space, common land, common areas through these sharing, hub, sharing hubs to create uh, infrastructure for, for sharing, for making and for repair. It could be that we need to think about every community of any size as the site for a unique mix of universal basic services. They'll be different everywhere because no two places are the same, so they'll always be meeting local needs. And that sounds great until you come to the big question. How do you pay for all of this? Because all of these services, they sound expensive and there's no magic pudding here. Just tax dollars, which are limited. So who decides what the money gets spent on? Who decides which services need to be universal and therefore should be subsidized by tax? That's generally the responsibility of local council or state or federal governments. It's not in the hands of those most directly impacted by these decisions. But there's another way to do it, something called participatory budgeting that seeks to balance the scales. A way to address this imbalance is to bring a more diverse group of people into decision-making in government. And one way that you can do that is through participatory budgeting. And this is the idea of setting aside a portion of a budget and getting people to put forward ideas and then evaluate and uh, contest those ideas as citizens to determine where public funds should be spent. It's an idea that actually first came into um, prominence in Brazil in the 1980s and um, has thrived in a number of cities there. Porto Alegre and um, Belo Horizonte are two of the key ones. And in those cities, in that time, there has been a radical shift in how money is spent. Because when people 
in communities can make decisions about where the money goes. It tends to go into education, into healthcare, into addressing some of those structural issues that disadvantage people who live in favelas or villas, for example, giving them access to covered sewerage or access to roads, building more early childhood. When you give people money who are closest to the ground and empower them to spend it in ways that are pro-social and benefit the most people, they tend to act to the benefit of the most disadvantaged in their communities. Participatory budgeting isn't just about helping the poorest in Brazil's favelas. It's also working in Madrid and around the world. Here's Darren Sharp again. In Madrid, for example, proposals that um, surpass a voter threshold of 1% of the electorate are put to a citizen vote, and if approved, they be automatically adopted and implemented by the city government, which is quite a radical and exciting idea as far as participatory democracy is concerned. They have a budgeting aspect of this as well, so citizens can propose how council budgets should be spent in those cities, and then other citizens can vote for up to 10 of the proposals And then proposals receiving the most votes are evaluated by council officers for validity, validity, for feasibility, viability, for for legality and so on, and then are put to a final citizen vote. And there's a planning aspect to this as well, where citizens in Barcelona and Madrid can participate in the development of city and district plans. Uh, Again, there's debate that goes on, voting on draft council strategies and plans, And essentially the software that underpins Destin in Barcelona, because it's been so successful, it's now being adopted by 31 cities, 13 regions and 23 organisations around the world where there's now 130 institutions in 33 countries uh, that are using this, mostly city and regional authorities. And if all of that sounds a little too neat, a little too good to be true, it's because we've glossed over the hard bit which is getting people talking about their political decisions. Now, there's no shortage of ways for people to talk these days, but, and here we really have to dwell for a minute, there's a shortage of ways to connect politically that allow us to truly see one another. Ways that embrace difference rather than using difference as the kindling for a bonfire of hatred. You know, what I think we're really lacking is a place to have these conversations, whether it's a physical place or a digital space or um, the language, the the composition of the group. You know, we are in bubbles. We speak, we talk in bubbles. And when we emerge from those bubbles in parts of social media, we do it in in conflict. You know, we don't know how and we don't have occasion to have these debates anymore. We have elections, and when we have elections, it tends to be transactional. What's in it for me? What's in the budget for you this, you know, this time round, Mark? Uh, Or here's what I'm going to give you. Here's what's going to be in your pocket if you vote for me after the election. But you know what? We don't have a society to just have a series of transactions with each other. We have a society because we are in relation with each other and we understand that we're social beings that can only thrive and prosper in concert with each other, in collaboration with each other. And we spend a lot of our lives in this ether of collaboration that is the internet, you know, a place that only exists through collective um, and, and socially motivated action in a sense. 
And yet we don't have any structures or locations or practices for actually discussing values with each other. And there's no structure in our society outside of elections for having those debates. This is the missing piece. How do we talk to one another about what we need when we find ourselves in disagreement? There have been some interesting experiments, um, and there's one called My Country Talks, which was conducted in, in Europe in 2019, in May in 2019. And thousands of people signed up for this. And the way that they did it was that they were asked to answer five questions. Questions that were quite polarising values questions about the future of the EU. And then through this process, people were paired up with other individuals who had the most diametrically opposed views to them. And they were paired up and then they were invited on this one Saturday to go meet each other in a public place because who knows what could have happened. Hey, they, these, these people were, were set up to, to fight. But they didn't fight. They actually found themselves connecting with each other and finding common ground. And they began to have empathy and understand how people could hold very different moral or values positions to them and yet still be good people. And many, you know, more than 80% of the people who participated in this enjoyed it and wanted to continue the conversation with this person. And they enjoyed the, the process of having a conversation with someone who could openly hold different points of view to them, but they weren't in conflict. They were there to talk it through and to find common ground. Common ground. It's there if we want it, if we work for it. And this brings us to the big question. Are we up for this? This is all doable, but it all takes time and effort. A better world, it's hard yards. We've got to be honest about that. We don't get the luxury of waking up into a world where all of our problems are solved for us. We wake up into a world where we have to work every single day to make this world a bit better for us. There's two bits of good news, right? The first bit of good news is you get to divide all the work by all the people that there are. So it's a lot of work, but actually there's a lot of us and we could all work together and in on our own and, and contribute our own part to creating a utopia, a future that we might want to live in. And the second benefit or advantage that we have over Bellamy or Morris's vision is that if you have more people bringing their version of utopia to the table, you get a more pluralistic, diverse and interesting future to live in. It's not just one vision that gets superimposed or lands like a spaceship on today. It's something that we grow from the ground up. And we would benefit if everyone contributed their version or their vision or glimpse of utopia into the mix. And for Darren Sharp, these glimpses of utopia are worth sharing. We do live in utopia. I mean, the life that I lead today in 2020 in Melbourne, Australia, you know, by my grandparents' estimation, you know, and someone would be seen as completely unfathomable. And, 
impossible for them to imagine. Just access to the world's knowledge in my, in the palm of my hand through my smartphone, you know, amazing uh, appliances that do so much work for me, being able to work from home and not having to commute, um, being you know, able to communicate with colleagues and collaborators all around the world 24-7, access to incredible uh, food and produce, which is, you know, a lot of it grown locally to me and available a short walk across the street to my local high street shopping mall and so on. So I think, you know, so many of us already do live in utopia. It's just, to borrow William Gibson's phrase, unevenly, you know, utopia is unevenly distributed. So I think we just have to recognise that you know, how do we accelerate the distribution of utopia so that more people can enjoy the benefit of it? If this is utopia, at least in potential, well, we've got a sense now of the path before us. There's no chasm. It's a steady march, well, probably more of a slog, from here to there. We know the work that we need to do. We've got to decide how we want to share, how much we want to share, and we have to work out how we can talk about this in a way that recognizes and accepts difference. So the next time you feel yourself getting hot about politics, the next time you feel you're not being seen for who you are, take that feeling and remember, whoever you're talking to, they're probably feeling that way too. And use that moment, use that recognition to build a bridge across the chasm that separates us. None of this will be easy, but at least it'll be satisfying. It's better than sitting at the table staring at those delicious soups, but going hungry because we haven't worked out how, together, we can build a better world. Has this episode gotten you to thinking about how we can make a better world together? If so, we would like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Big thanks to Jess Scully and Darren Sharp for coming on to our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. If you like this show, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, please pass it along to them. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search The Next Billion Seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.